As we continue walking through Isaiah tonight, we move into chapter 51. And tonight I'm going to take most all of chapter 51 and then most of chapter 52 as a unit tonight. I'm going to stop at chapter 52 verse 12 because I think beginning in 52 verse 13, we have a clear transition there into talking about the suffering servant as we then move into Isaiah 53. So tonight our focus is going to be on chapter 51 to 52 verse 12 and really two main themes and and both of them are very positive, encouraging. In chapter 51, we really have a, a message of encouragement to the people of Judah and then chapter 52 deals more with good news, specifically with regard to Jerusalem and the Lord's promise to restore it. And so in chapter 51, we're going to see encouragement to the righteous, encouragement to the righteous. And what Isaiah does, especially in the first half of this chapter, is he encourages the people of Israel to look to the Lord through different lenses. He, he encourages them to look to the past and to see God's blessings on them in the past. He encourages them to look to the future in hope. And as they look to the past and the future, then they can find encouragement in the present. And so in verses one through three, he encourages them to look to the past and how the Lord has blessed his people in, in times long ago. And so in these opening verses, Isaiah is really addressing the people who desire to follow the Lord, those who desire to fear him and to walk with him. And he is encouraging them and he's encouraging them by having them look back to their roots, to Abraham and Sarah. And so in verse one, he says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. So in verse one, we have some imagery. He says, look to the rock, look to the quarry. And if you only read verse one, you might start wondering, okay, what is this referring to? Who is this referring to? But I think we get a pretty clear answer in verse two, when he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, your mother. So the idea of the rock and the quarry from which you were hewn, from which you came, is Abraham and Sarah. So he encourages them to look back to their roots and the way that God dealt with them. He says in verse two, when I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. And so he's referring to the story of Abraham in Genesis, how we know that Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children. And so you had one man and one woman, his wife, and they had no children. And yet God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12 and says, I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you descendants and out of you, I will make you a blessing to other people and bless all the families of the earth. But at that point, it was just he and Sarah. Where, where are these descendants going to come from? And so he's referring back to that story and says, out of this one man, God made many. And he's talking to those many, to the people that have come from Abraham and Sarah. And he says in verse three, the Lord will surely comfort Zion 
and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. So essentially what Isaiah is doing in verses 1 through 3 is he's calling to the righteous and he's writing to people who are in exile in Babylon, but looking to the Lord in hope that they might be restored. And so he's calling to those who seek to, to follow the Lord and to seek his righteousness. And he says, I just want to remind you of something. Remember where you came from and remember how for a period of time it looked like nothing at all was going to happen with Abraham and Sarah. They were just one man and one woman. And yet out of that, God did an incredibly amazing thing. He brought a whole nation out of those two people. He's using that past story as a way to think about what the Lord is capable of and what he can do for Jerusalem. So when we come across the word Zion, he's talking about Jerusalem, which was broken down, right? It was destroyed, burned down by the Babylonians. And yet he says, well, out of nothing, Abraham and Sarah, God brought a nation. Out of the ruins that are in Jerusalem, God can restore that and bring it to even above and beyond what it was before. He compares the restoration of Zion to making the deserts and the fields around Jerusalem like the Garden of Eden. That's that's, that's incredible restoration, isn't it? Talk about a, a contrast between a destroyed, ruined, broken down city and the Garden of Eden. And God's, and Isaiah is saying, this is what God can do. And this is what he holds out hope to you of what he will do. Now, was this fulfilled literally, completely, when the Jews came back from Babylon? I don't think that you can say that it was, at least to the full extent of its fulfillment. Was was there a great restoration? Absolutely. And what God was able to do with Jerusalem in that broken down state, they came back, they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple, they restored life there in Jerusalem and Judah. Can we say that it was like the Garden of Eden? Not yet. Not yet. But I think that's coming still. And so in a new Jerusalem that John describes coming down out of heaven, in a new heavens and a new earth, it will be like Eden. It will be like the garden of the Lord. So some of this, it's, it's almost like an ongoing progressive fulfillment from Isaiah's perspective. That first they come home from Babylon, restore the city. The Messiah comes, the servant of the Lord comes, he brings honor and glory to that place that it had never seen before. And then ultimately, in the consummation of all things, that servant, that Messiah, brings in this age of peace and joy that is described here. So it's a, it's a multi-stage fulfillment. But he's holding out this hope to them and says, just remember where you came from. That's what God can do. So he says, look to your past. And then he says, look also to the future. Set your eyes on the hope that is coming. In verse 4, he says, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. 
Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to, to the nations. And this is immediately following on the, the promise of restoration for Jerusalem in verse 3. So the restoration of Jerusalem also means light and hope for the world. And we can see that happening and being fulfilled through Christ and through the gospel, that, that the light of the nations is going out to the world. And ultimately, again, at the end, in the consummation of all things, not only Jews, but Gentiles and the nations will come and flock to the Lord's holy city. And there the word of the Lord will reign. The justice and the righteousness of the Lord will reign. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Again, the the arm of the Lord is just a symbol of his power and not of not just of power, but of his delivering power. Usually when you see the arm of the Lord, it's in the context of deliverance or of salvation. And so here he's saying the Lord is strong, he's capable, and his arm will save. It will deliver. Immediately in the very near future, when Cyrus gives the order for the Israelites to go home, and the restoration of Jerusalem begins. But even beyond that, we know that ultimate salvation comes through his servant, don't we? Comes through the Messiah, comes through Jesus. And this is a salvation that will extend beyond the borders of Israel to the nations and to the islands. So it it encompasses a more global scope. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. And I think here... What Isaiah is doing is he's not necessarily saying that the earth and the heavens are going to cease to exist. But what he's using is essentially a comparison between the the relative security and long lasting state of the earth and the heavens versus the word of the Lord. And so as long as you can imagine the earth enduring and the heavens enduring, He says, even if they were to completely fade away and fall away and and roll up and become nothing, God's word remains and his salvation will not fail. Now, is there coming a time when there will be a purifying and then a new heavens and the new earth? Sure, absolutely. And the New Testament writers speak of that. Isaiah speaks of that. Toward the end of Isaiah, he talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Peter talks about the elements melting with fervent heat. And John in Revelation talks about a new heavens and a new earth. But I think the essential point that Isaiah is making here is the word of God and his salvation will not fail. It's stronger than very creation itself. It's stronger than heavens and the earth. So look to the past, what God did with Abraham and Sarah. Look to the future, what he will do for his people as he restores Jerusalem and draws the nations to him in righteousness And all of that then should have an impact on the way that we live in the present and the hope and the encouragement that we can have in the present. And just just as a thought for us today, we're not living in Babylon, literally in captivity, but we are living in an increasingly pagan world, aren't we? That 
every, each and every day looks more and more like pagan Babylon. And so we need this kind of encouragement just as much as the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. And so what can we do? We can look to our past. We can look to Abraham and Sarah. We can look to the Exodus out of Egypt. We can look to the Lord's provision for his people in the wilderness. We can look to the cross of Calvary and see what the Lord did through Christ in redeeming his people. We can look to the empty tomb and that if God can raise his son Jesus from the dead, there is nothing that is too difficult for him. So we can look to the past. We also can look to the future. We have hundreds of scriptures that point us to the hope that uh, is in store for God's people. All of that should reorient our perspective for the present to give us hope and give us encouragement in the present. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing here. So he says, hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have taken my instruction to heart, do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. Well, we need that today, don't we? I mean, right now, it seems like, at least in my lifetime, probably in in everyone's lifetime that's in this room, Christianity is being more maligned, more insulted, more scorned than probably at any time in, in our American history during our lifetimes. And Isaiah is saying, don't, wor- don't worry about their reproach. Don't worry about the insults of those who don't fear God. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Basically, he's saying, everyone who is against you right now, they won't be for long. Look at this through an eternal perspective. Yes, right now, there are foes of God. There are foes of God's people. There are those that hate Christianity and hate God's people. There are those that insult it and malign it every day. From an eternal perspective... Their time on the scene is going to be very short. And very soon, they're going to be gone just like a moth eating through cloth or a worm eating through that which is decomposing. It's going to be gone. But that which endures is the Lord and his righteousness and his word and and those who have been delivered by him and, and united to him in faith. So don't worry about these that are insulting you. Pretty soon, they're going to be passing away. And then we have a prayer from Isaiah, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah the prophet cries out to the Lord. And so, so far we've seen very strong imperative type verbs of the Lord through Isaiah to his people. Listen, look, wake yourselves up. Now, Isaiah is addressing the Lord in a prayer with these kind of imperative calling out verbs. And he says in verse nine, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. So he's calling out to the Lord for the Lord's power, for the Lord's deliverance. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? The idea of Rahab or Rahab, don't confuse it with 
uh, Rahab in the book of Joshua. So that's the, the, that's the person who held out the, uh, the laid down the, the red cord, scarlet cord out of her window and said, when you come and conquer, remember me and remember my family. That's, that's Rahab the person. In the prophets, we have this reference to a, Rah- a Rahab or Rahab in Hebrew that is some kind of sea creature, some kind of sea monster. And it, and it becomes kind of like an illustration of, or a, a figure, a symbol, if you will, of, of that which is an enemy, that which is chaotic, that which is strong and powerful, that which is to be feared. Kind of like you might even think of, you know, uh, sailors crossing the sea and fearing, you know, the, the great sea dragon. You know, that, that's, that's kind of the image. And what Isaiah is saying here is that's nothing for the Lord. The Lord just, he, he takes him and defeats him and cuts him to pieces. And, and he conquers the seas. And in, in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, the sea was often viewed as chaotic and unpredictable and, and to be feared. But Isaiah is saying the Lord controls all that. He's, he's the Lord over that. He can dry up the sea. He can make the waters of the great deep dry up. He made a road through the depths of the sea so the redeemed might cross over. I think directly referring to the Exodus event when the people of Israel were fleeing from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and God says to the sea, move. And the sea moves, and it dries up, and God's redeemed, his rescued people, walk across on dry ground. So God can do that. And what Isaiah is doing in verse number 9 is he's crying out for that. So it's almost as if Isaiah has told the people, Look at what God did in the past. Look at what God has promised to do in the future. So be encouraged in the present. And now in in light of everything that God has said and everything that God has done, everything he promised, he said he would do. Isaiah prays in line with those promises of God and says, now do it essentially. Now arise, fulfill your word. It really reminds me of Daniel chapter 9, where in Daniel chapter 9, you have the prophet Daniel, and he's reading from the prophecy of Jeremiah, where it says that the Israelite people would be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And then on after reading that prophecy and knowing that the time was coming near for that 70 years to be fulfilled... What does Daniel do? Most of Daniel 9 is a prayer. It's a prayer. God, forgive us. Remember your word. Remember your covenants to your people. And now, Lord, please rescue us. Restore your people. Restore your holy city. So Daniel's praying in light of God's word. I see Isaiah doing the same thing here. He said, look to the past, look to the future, look to God's promises. And now he prays in line with that. Lord, arise, awake, and do your work. And so here's God's response then. In verses 11 through 16, the Lord responds to the prayer of Isaiah. And he says, those that the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing 
will flee away. Essentially, the Lord is saying, Isaiah, I've heard your prayer, and I'm going to act. Those who believe in the Lord, those who have been rescued by the Lord, they will return. And they will come into Zion with shouts of joy. They will come in with praise. And this becomes a great image of God's worshiping people. This verse can describe us every time we walk through these doors and come in to worship God because we've been delivered from Babylon. We've been delivered from Egypt. We can come in with singing and with gladness and joy, but it also, I think, to an even higher degree, reflects walking through the gates of the heavenly city, right? That, that one day when we, we come in to that final glorious heavenly Jerusalem, we'll come in with shouts of joy and gladness and praise and literally forevermore, no more sorrowing and sighing. Just like John says in Revelation, all those tears, they were wiped away. No more sorrow, no more crying for the former things they've passed away. And so God says to Isaiah, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to act. I'm going to come. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good reminder that when, when people are opposed to God and opposed to his people, who do you really fear? Do you fear God or do you fear people? Do you fear man who, he says, they're, they're just grass. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Why fear them that you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? God is basically saying there's coming a time you don't need to fear people anymore. You shouldn't fear them now because the Lord, your God, is on the throne. But there's coming a time when he's going to restore Jerusalem and there will be no more oppression. There'll be no more anything to fear. The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. Freedom for the captives, deliverance from Babylon. For I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that, it, so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Could you ask for any greater hope than that when the Lord says, I made everything. I, I laid the foundations of the earth. I put the stars in space. And God says, Jerusalem, you're my people. In other words, God's not forgotten about you. God's not forsaken you. You might be in Babylon, in captivity, in exile right now, but he has not forgotten you. He will bring you home and he will bring you home with joy. And at that time, there will be nothing to fear. Your oppressors will be no more. So trust in the Lord and his promises. So much of chapter 51, just encouragement, encouragement for the people of God. Look to what God has done in the past. Look at what he will do. Trust in him. He's promised to come and he is committed to rescuing Zion. Chapter 52 and verses 1 through 12 can be described as good news for Jerusalem. 
good news for Jerusalem. And the last couple of verses of chapter 51, the Lord speaks of the Jewish people, speaks of the people of Judah as, and he uses kind of an imagery of someone who is drunk, someone who is staggering because of, because they're drunk. But it's a different kind of drunkenness. It's a very interesting imagery that Isaiah uses in these verses. He says in verse 17, awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. So he's using imagery like alcohol, drunkenness, but what he's actually referring to with this cup that they have that they've drank from is the Lord's wrath. Meaning he, he's talking about their rebellion, their disobedience, and the fact that they have been punished for that disobedience in drinking the Lord's wrath, they are now in exile in Babylon. So he's kind of referring to their present condition in Babylon and under the judgment of the Lord in these in this kind of symbolic way. But now he's telling them to wake, to wake up. Why? Because the Lord's deliverance is at hand. Among all the children that she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children that she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. Again, continuing the imagery of someone who is lost, stumbling, staggering. Talking about the Israelites' current condition in exile under the chastening hand of the Lord. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? So he's talking about what has recently happened to them in Jerusalem and Judah and their defeat and destruction and taken to captivity in Babylon. Where's your comfort going to come? Where's your encouragement going to come? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They're filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. So you can, you can see in this language the heaviness of the Lord's chastening hand on his people. And he's using all of these images of someone who is staggering around in drunkenness, someone who is on the street in poverty, a deer who is, or an antelope who's caught in a trap. It's all of these images depict their current state under the heavy hand of the Lord's wrath. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. And there you can see kind of the the twist in the imagery. They're walking around like they're drunk with wine, but they're not drunk with wine. They're drunk with the cup of the Lord's wrath. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. So what the Lord is saying in verses 22 and 23 is, you have been drinking from the cup of my wrath. 
you've been staggering around. You've been under the weight of my chastening hand. And the form that that chastening hand has taken is your oppressors, your, your captors, the Babylonians, who have made you subservient to them. And in symbolic way, he says, they've made you lie on the street so they could walk on your backs. But there's coming a point, God says, when I'm going to take that cup of wrath out of your hand, you'll no longer have to drink from it. Instead, I'm going to take my judgment away from you and I'm going to put my judgment on your oppressors, on the Babylonians. So God's going to bring down the Babylonians who had been oppressing the Israelite people. And so this is, this is good news. It starts out you know, kind of dark and, and weighed down with their, with the Lord's hand on them, but it turns toward good news, doesn't it? And I think here is a good reminder, a good picture of the gospel in that before we can really understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news, right? And so before Isaiah can reveal to them the good news of God taking the cup of God's wrath out of their hands and giving it to their oppressors, he has to remind them of the condition that they're in. They're in wrath. They're, they're under the Lord's wrath. They're in judgment. But salvation is coming. So also us, right? How does Romans begin? The book of Romans says that we are in sin. We're depraved. We're, we're corrupt before the Lord. And what do we deserve? We deserve the Lord's wrath. It says the Lord's wrath has been revealed against mankind, against all those who do ungodliness and wickedness. And so we have to understand that we're under the wrath of God before we can understand the mercy that comes to us in salvation. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament, we see a very clear image of this passage when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What cup is that? It's the cup of wrath. It's this cup of God's judgment against sinners. And Jesus says, under the weight of the, just the, the crushing weight of the thought of not only dying, but dying in the way that he would, in taking upon himself the sins of his people. That, that weight was overwhelming to him. And he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup of wrath away from me. But he knew what the Lord's will was, didn't he? In, in incredible discouragement and that weighing down on him, he prayed that prayer, but he also prayed, Lord, thy will be done. And the next day, that night and the next day, he did drink from that cup of the Lord's wrath. But here's the beautiful thing is because he did, we don't. Because he did, we don't. It's as if, the Lord took the cup of wrath from our hands and gave it to Christ. And Christ drank it, not because he deserved it, because we deserved it, but he drank that cup of wrath for us so that we could receive mercy and grace. 
And so that, that image is here in Isaiah where he says, the Lord is going to take away from you that cup of wrath, that cup of judgment that has been in your hand. You've been in Babylon under the chastening hand of the Lord, but he's going to take that from you and restore you. He's going to bring deliverance to you. And so Jerusalem then is described as free, as being rescued, redeemed by the Lord. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. So the hand of the Lord's wrath has been heavy on you, but look up. Wake up, look up in hope because the Lord is going to restore Zion. Put on your garments of not of poverty, not of captivity, not of slavery, but put on your garments of splendor, your garments of praise, because the Lord is going to restore his city. And then it says the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Again, I think we have to see there a multi-stage fulfillment because when when the people of Judah came back from Babylon, they restored, they rebuilt, they restored God's community there, but there were uncircumcised people who came into Jerusalem again, right? There, there were Gentiles who lived there, but even, even beyond that, you have AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem again. So, this has not yet been fully fulfilled. And so there's coming a time when God's holy city will be completely holy and the uncircumcised will not come in to defile her again. Now, does that mean only Jewish people in an ethnic sense will be there? I don't think so because this Isaiah has already said that God's going to reach out to the nations and the islands and bring them in. So I would understand this more in the sense of Paul in Romans when he says those who are circumcised of heart, they are the true Israel. And so not, not just those who are circumcised physically of children of Abraham, but those who are circumcised spiritually are the true children of Abraham. And, and those are going to come from not just ethnic Jews, but Gentiles and the islands and the nations. And they will come to this holy city. But I think this, is, this cannot be fully fulfilled until the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven out of, out of, uh, from God. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. Daughter Zion, now a captive. So coming out of Babylon, no more chains of captivity. Now you're going to be free. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing. And without money, you will be redeemed. God's going to do it, right? And God doesn't have to pay anybody to redeem his people. He doesn't owe anybody anything. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. He, he does a quick run through Israel's history and their enemies. He says, you've had Egypt, 
in ca- you've been in captivity in Egypt. You've had Assyria oppressing you. Now you have Babylon oppressing you. And the Lord's name is constantly being blasphemed, but he's going to free them. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Just like God said when he brought Israel out of Egypt, I'm doing this so that everyone will know that Yahweh is God. Here he's saying to the people of Judah, I foretold this. I prophesied it. I told you it was going to be Cyrus by name so that when it happens, you will know that I am God. That the name of the Lord would not be blasphemed, but glorified, exalted. And so then we see Jerusalem, the rejoicing. Jerusalem, the rejoicing. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. If those verses sound familiar, it's because Paul quotes them pretty much verbatim in Romans chapter 10. And he talks about in that context, Paul is talking about the need for the good news of the gospel of Jesus who died and rose again for that good news to go out to the nations because preachers need to be sent and people need to hear the gospel so they will believe. In the context of Isaiah, the good news refers to their deliverance from Babylon and and Isaiah going up on the mountaintops, if you will, declaring that good news and declaring their rescue that's coming and uh, the good news that's coming for Zion. He says, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. It, it's, a, it's an image of, of Jerusalem with people on guard, watchmen on the towers, and they see the Lord coming in deliverance. They see him coming in salvation. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So what God does for the Israelite people in bringing them home and rebuilding Zion will be a testimony to the nations. And it will give honor and glory to God. And I think what Isaiah is telling the Israelites people here in, in, in his day is really just a small microcosm of the full salvation that God does. Not only, not only physically in restoring a city, but spiritually in redeeming and restoring a people. And when the world sees what God does for his people, they can't help but praise and glorify God. Reminds me of Matthew 5 when Matthew says, Jesus says, let your light so shine before others. So they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. When, when the gospel is made manifest in the lives of people, it brings honor and glory to God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure. You who carry the articles of the Lord's house. This is... Now the Lord has come, he's delivering. When that word comes from Cyrus, when that decree comes out, leave. Just like when the Lord killed the firstborn on that last night in Egypt. When that happened, 
leave, go to the promised land. When that decree from Cyrus comes, you leave, you get up and you go and you come out with pure hands, especially those who are carrying the articles of the Lord. And here I think referring to the fact that when Jerusalem was destroyed, that many of the precious articles from the, the palace, but also from the temple, some of the holy vessels were taken to Babylon and those would have to be brought back, returned with the people. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. And it, I think there's in, intentional, very direct allusions here back to the Exodus in that when you leave Babylon, it's not going to be exactly the same as when the people left Egypt. When the people left Egypt, they, they were hastening out. And it was, it was you know, don't, don't bring any leavened bread, bring unleavened bread. Because you're not going to have time for it to leaven. You, need to, you need to leave that night and have your bags packed, have everything ready. Because when the word comes, you need to go. And they were in fear of Pharaoh's pursuing them, right? So they were, it was like running for their lives in a sense. But this time God says, it's going to be a peaceful exit. There's no, nobody's going to be chasing you because I'm bringing this about. Cyrus is going to give the decree, go, leave, depart, go home, but you're not going to be having to run for your lives. And the Lord is going to be your protection against anyone who may even think about trying to pursue you. The Lord is your rear guard. Here's your rear defense. But the Lord is going to open this door for you and go and he will protect you. He will guide you along the way. And so just like in the Exodus, God led them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He also protected them against Pharaoh and his army. So too here, he's going to lead and protect his people when he brings them home. And these are all images of the salvation that God does for us through Christ. And one day, we're coming out of exile. The New Testament writers use that, that terminology. Right now, we're pilgrims. We're pilgrims. We're strangers in a foreign land, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And one day, God's going to give the decree. He's going to give that trumpet shout, and we're leaving Egypt. We're leaving Babylon, and we're going home. And uh, we look forward to that day, don't we? So... In light of what God has done in the past, in light of what he, he promises he will do in the future, let that orient you in hope and encouragement for the present.